And I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 15 and verse 36 through 41 will be the anchor text for the sermon that I bring to you today. And I want to share with you this issue that you notice by my title, which is Building Bridges in Turbulent Times. And we're going to see through this scripture verse what is going on in the life of Paul and Barnabas and a man by the name of Mark and a gentleman that will come along and join the team by the name of Silas and what is going to happen during this turbulent times of conflict. And I would argue that many of you sitting here today and all of us at certain seasons of our life experience the turbulent waters that are below. And we often need somebody to help us build a bridge to get us to the other side, to clearly see the great things that God is doing in our life, even when things seem to be turbulent through conflict and chaos that is going on. And I would argue that's what we're going to see in the text today. So I want to share an image with you. I think it's rather fitting. It's kind of beautiful. It's where I'd like to find myself today, sitting on a lake in just crystal clear, glassy water, no ripples, no no, no, no difference deformities in the view. Beautiful. You look into it and you can see your face reflect back. And, and uh, isn't that what we often look at ministry and we think this is what ministry looks like. When you become a Sunday school teacher, you think, man, this is, this is going to be great. Everything's going to go just smooth with my class and God's going to open my mind to learn all these things and I'm not going to have any problems at all. I'm going to serve in the nursery this year and things are going to be wonderful with the children and we're not going to have any problems because we prepared well and everything's clean and the parents are going to be so supportive of the ministry that no one's going to complain about anything and it's just going to be crystal clear, smooth sailing, right? But the reality when we look at ministry and in our life as a Christian, we come to Jesus and we think everything is going to be fantastic now in my life. God has saved me. He's forgiven me of my sin. And man, life is going to just be good, isn't it? Just smooth sailing. But in reality, this next image probably summarizes our life more, right? we got turbulent waters that are going. And, and while we're thankful that in Christ Jesus we can be in the boat, but we know that there are still turbulent waters that we're going to have to navigate even when we're doing ministry. That's often, I would argue, that's what the picture of real ministry in life looks like. Turbulent waters that we all go through. The word minister is another derivative of the word diakonos, meaning a servant to Christ Jesus. Those who serve the body. And we're all called to minister. That's where we get that term from. So I'd argue we in Christ Jesus are all in the same boat traveling the same river of life, which often we hit times of great rapids in our life. And that's no different from what Paul is experiencing now. He's gone from a spiritual high of wonderful things happening to sitting with the Jerusalem council and coming up with an understanding of what he did in Barnabas as they went on their first missionary journey and went all over Asia Minor planting churches. They were seeing Gentiles who were once not allowed to even come near the synagogue unless they were a proselyte, and even then they were kept on the outer court. They could never come in and truly worship Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the way Paul and Barnabas saw it. And now on their first missionary journey, they were traveling all over the place, and they were converting folks through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were seeing Gentiles who were once far off, converted by faith and faith alone, a gift of God, not by works, lest no man shall boast. And Paul and Barnabas were seeing tremendous growth of people coming to Jesus. So they have this issue in the Jerusalem council at the beginning of chapter 15, where the Jew and the Gentile are now trying to figure out how do we work together? You see, there were some that were teaching that the Jews, they needed to institute the the right of circumcision amongst the Gentiles. 
And it was a big conference held together where the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church came together to decide what should we do with all of these Gentile churches and how should they worship. And they agreed to write a letter to them to abstain from sexual immorality and drunkenness and all the things that were part of their Greek or their Gentile life, but to commit themselves to God. Then that, we want to add nothing else to you, because they also understood that it was by faith and faith alone. It was a gift of God, not by works, that they have a relationship now. So now we have the Gentile church that Paul and Barnabas were responsible for planting all over Asia Minor, now in one accord with the Jerusalem church, with a clear understanding of how they were to worship. Now the turbulent waters come in here in this passage of Scripture as we're going to see what Paul desires to do and the confrontation that occurs with Barnabas over a man by the name of Mark. Let's read our text, Acts chapter 15, picking up in verse 36. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can follow along there. You can also find a few apps, but if you need a Bible, let us know. We will be glad to get you one. But picking up in chapter 15, verse 36, we'll read to verse 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you have given us to understand. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts. Father, we may understand that through even turbulent waters, Lord, you build great bridges that often span the divide that we can't even understand what you are doing amongst us. Father, help us to understand what was going on in the life of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Mark. But, Father, help us to see the great work that you often accomplish even during times of conflict. Father, we thank you. Now we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, if you're joining us at home, we want to welcome you, and we hope that today you will hear something that helps you understand the aspect of turbulent waters often occur in ministry. And it's often challenging for you, for me, for all of us as a member of the body of Christ anytime that we have to deal with conflict in a church. Often our first response when we're new in the faith is, I can't believe this is happening. How could he do that? How could she do that? How could this be happening amongst the church? But I want to share with you through this message that there are some significant ways that we can understand how to build bridges even during turbulent times. And often, God uses you and I in that conflict to build them. So four things we're going to look at today when we look at this scripture is how do we do exactly that and how do we see God's hand even amongst the turmoil? Number one, I want to share with you that good intentions can cause a great divide. Can you agree on that? Sometimes we do things where good intentions, we meant to do well, our decisions that we we had, we thought were going to go well, and we thought about it, and we made a decision, and all of a sudden, man, we just caused a head-on collision with somebody, right? We don't want that to happen, but sometimes good intentions can cause a division, even amongst church members, even amongst brothers and sisters that truly love one another. Our good intentions can often cause a challenge for us and we have a choice what do we do with that 
What we're going to see going on here, notice in verse 1 of, of, of or excuse me, in verse 36, what was going on. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas, now we don't know what the some days were, but that's a literary tool to let us know that a great time had expanded or went from the time the Jerusalem council had met and this great euphoria of the fact that the Gentiles and the Jews were now understood to be in one accord with one another on how to move forward in worship. And it was just a great thing. You can imagine Barnabas, the encourager, that's what his name means. How happy he was that the Jerusalem church was agreeing to worship with the new Gentile church with no division. Paul, who was responsible for leading this missionary work, you can imagine how elated he was. That, man, we've come to an agreement. This is wonderful. There's no challenges. Let's go back and visit them again. You can imagine the enthusiasm that Paul had to go back and see them. Because, see, Paul... If you know anything about his ministry, when you read about the letters that Paul writes, these 13 Pauline epistles that we have that you're holding in your New Testament or that you're able to scroll through on your device, 13 Pauline epistles that he writes focusing on the issue of discipleship. You see, Paul was a disciple maker. Paul, I believe, took to heart to do the very thing that God called him to do in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. See, Paul took that to heart so much that we have 13 epistles where he's instructing the churches how to walk together in faith and be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. You can imagine how excited he was to turn to Barnabas, the great encourager. Now, don't forget who Barnabas was. I get excited about this stuff. Anybody else a Bible geek like me? Like you start, I read these things on Saturday night, and I can't go to sleep. Like I can't wait to preach. I've got to go out and find the chickens. They're all held up in the coop, right? But man, Barnabas was the guy that stood up for Paul at the very beginning of his ministry that talked to the apostles, the brothers in Jerusalem, and said, no, 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 Saul's changed. You wouldn't believe what God has done in the life of this Saul of Tarsus, who was once persecuting the church, who was there at the stoning of Stephen, who they laid his, their robes at the feet of this young Saul of Tarsus, who was probably cheering on the death of Stephen. Barnabas says, no, no, you won't understand what God has done with him. He has changed his life. Paul is on fire for the Lord. Matter of fact, right after his conversion, the Bible tells us that after he had eaten and gained his strength, he immediately, immediately went to the synagogue. The synagogues where the Jewish people would have been. Those who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It says he immediately went to the synagogue and began to preach Christ Jesus. This is Barnabas now telling that story to the rest of the apostles. So they would welcome Paul amongst them because they were afraid of this Saul of Tarsus. They thought it was a trick to throw them in the prison. So Barnabas stands up, the encourager, for this Saul of Tarsus. And now we find ourselves several chapters later, after a great work of God that had been done amongst the churches in Asia Minor. And now here we have a clash of contention between these two men I believe Barnabas would have died for Paul early on in that stage. And he, he, you'll see later on that he still does great things. But here there's a point of contention in their ministry. Let's look what God does through that. And some days later, Paul said to Barnabas, excuse me, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Now, you'll notice what doesn't go on here. There's nowhere in here that we see anything where Paul was being self-serving. We don't see his motive being questioned. I mean, he's wanting to do a good thing for God, amen? I mean, how can we find fault with that? But you'll notice, let me give you three things that God's good things that sometimes divide us. Number one, desiring good or desiring God. Desiring good or desiring God. I was once told there's a lot of things we can do that are good. But sometimes there are decisions that are best that we have to make in ministry, that we have to make in our own life, that you have to make in your life. Often it's not a decision when we're applying for a new job, whether I should take this job or that job or that job. Maybe you have multiple. Maybe you're a person with great talent, and you have multiple employers wanting to hire you. So in there, the decision's not good. We know it's good to work. But what's the best thing for my family? And often we're faced with that decision not being what's good, but what's best. A lot of things are good, but they're not all best. Often in ministry, however, we can also be faced with the decision of what is good and what is God. What is honoring and serving to God. Now we'll notice in Paul's decision here what he was wanting to do had no selfish motive. He was not saying, hey, let's go back and visit them so we can collect the tithes that they owe. That'll come in another later, later on because of the offering that was being taken up for the Jerusalem church. And he'll address that issue. But that wasn't his motive here. He truly had a heart's desire to see how the churches were being strengthened because he was a disciple maker. Now, when we look at that, I think we could all agree, and I'll be as bold to say that in the Baptist church, I think we can all agree that there's no hidden motive going on here in this verse of Scripture. His desire was solely to do the things and the work of God that God had called them to. But yet it's going to create a tremendous amount of tension, even when, I would argue, Barnabas was struggling with desiring good over desiring God here in this purpose. But we will see that God will use Barnabas and Mark in a special way towards the end of this scripture. Number two, that often looking out for others can lead to a divide. Now, we don't see it fully developed here, but we're going to see in a moment that Barnabas' key concern of this conflict and Paul's key concern of this conflict was one and the same. It was over this issue of a man called John, also called Mark. We'll use the term Mark for the rest of our text here. But there was a contention over Mark and what Mark had not done in his lack of faithfulness. For some reason, in Acts chapter 13, you can read about this, how Mark had abandoned them in Pamphylia and had left the ministry while all these Gentiles are being converted, there's some reason that Mark decides to go back to Jerusalem. Right in, the, right in the heat of battle, Mark departs and leaves them. So you can imagine here the contention over looking out for others that is leading to a divide. It's happening with Barnabas. In a moment, we'll see it in the next verse. But thirdly, an eager enthusiasm, yet different vantage points. Have you ever seen someone that was just on fire for Jesus? And wanted to do something. Man, they were set. This is how we got to do it. And and they they share their plan with someone else. And then you pop their balloon. Right? You let all the air out of their, their, their balloon. And all of a sudden they're deflated. Because how could you not agree with me on that? How could you not think that's, that's great? Folks, I'll share a testimony real quick about our, our de- desire to disciple using digital means. But Robert and I were talking about this this morning. And many of you sitting here may smile at this now. I, ho- I hope you'll smile and not still throw a tomato at me. But remember when we made a shift from paper materials being a particular curriculum, and I won't call out the name. There are lots of them to choose from. But we shifted from a, a particular curriculum in our Baptist convention to using right now media. We shifted to digital platforms as another tool for us to use. 
And man, there was some weeping and gnashing of teeth over Right Now Media, wasn't there? There still is, perhaps. If there is, forgive me. No, I love you, right? Discipleship is my concern. But man, we had some contention over the shift and the transition because a lot of our folks didn't understand it. We were uncomfortable with it. We didn't know why we were doing this. So there were some who had eager enthusiasm, and then there were some who had differing vantage points or differing views on whether this would be good or not. And there's nothing wrong with having a different view when we look for not what's good, but what's God and what is God doing amongst his people. But it's sad to say I I know of a few folks that have left our church and fellowship over this very issue because they thought it was wrong that we used a different way to do ministry. And we're going to see here we need not let our eager enthusiasm or our differing vantage points divide us, but rather bring us together. So sometimes good intentions can cause conflict in the church. And notice that's what's happening here in verse 36. We're on the very beginning of this confrontation that's going to brew. Look in verse 37 with me. I'm going to transition to our second point. Differing viewpoints can cause this contention. Verse 37. Now Barnabas, the encourager, remember this now, he's an encourager wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now the encourager, isn't it our nature? If every one of us in this room took a personality survey, these are tools sometimes employers will use. We use them in ministry to help us understand how a person is wired by God to serve in certain ways. Some of us are high in the of mercy. Some of us are high in the gift of service. Some of us are high in the gift of giving. We all have different gifts. And amongst this group, a diverse crowd, we would all have differing gifts. Now, Barnabas had the gift of encouragement. He was an encourager. He's a lot like Pastor Corey. He's got the gift of wanting to encourage people. I have a slightly different gift. Most of you all know what that is, so I won't share that with you, right? Uh, I'm not very pragmatic in a lot of things. But let's, where the rubber meets the road is where we need to go often. Right? Let's do the ministry and let's do the work that God has called us to. Well, Barnabas here is an encourager, and although he knows Mark had left them greatly in Pamphylia in a time of need, notice what he's doing. He's defaulting to his normal nature. He's going right back to being what made Barnabas who he was. He was an encourager. And instead of saying, no, Mark, you can't go with us because you have not proven yourself worthy, you have not X, Y, or Z, whatever the issue may be, he immediately stands up and defends Mark and says, no, let's bring him along. Now, what you don't see here that you'll find in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 is that John, also called Mark, was Barnabas's cousin. So you got a little family tie going in here, a little family loyalty of what's happening. Both of them are from the Isle of Cyprus. Both of them lived in Cyprus. And at the end of this passage, we will see that they go back home to Cyprus where Barnabas and Mark go there to take their ministry. And Silas and Paul will depart and go in a different direction. But isn't it funny sometimes that family ties can also cause a divide? Now, we know Barnabas was an encourager, but we also cannot refute the fact that there's family issues that are going on here as well. Does family ties ever tie into Baptist church life? <laughs> you better believe it. I was once told as a young pastor, now let me tell you something, son. That's what they called me back then, right? You don't you ever talk about nobody in your church. I said, I would never do that. He says, oh, no, I assure you, the day will come. Well, you'll want to share something with somebody, but you can't do it. I said, why not? Because they're all related I said, oh my goodness, right? Isn't that the truth in a Baptist church? Most of us look around and we're related by distant cousins or somebody else. And next thing you know, we 
find out that family line, it may be seven cousins down the road, but somehow in a small community where we've all lived and where we were raised and we've grown up, we all know each other. It may just be a strong friendship, but we're still related, right? A brother sticks closer to a friend. I believe, or a, a friend sticks closer than a brother, I believe, is how the passage goes in the Psalms, or the proverb. Right? So we know that we've got to be careful. So Barnabas is related here to John, also called Mark. In verse 38, but Paul thought not best to take him who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Now what we don't know in the scripture is why Mark had deserted them. But there's a few theories that had went on. Number one, Mark being a Jew may not have approved of what he was now seeing in the new manner of ministry that was taking place. Mark may not have appreciated the fact that Gentiles were now all of a sudden being able to worship God the same way he could, and it was messing up his mind. You ever have a person that visits your church or someone that's from a different denomination that comes in and sees how you do things, and after the church service is over, you're thinking to yourself, I ain't never going back to that church. That's crazy, right? Dancing around, screaming up and down the aisle, jumping on the pulpit. Uh, you know, whatever your issue may be, but we experience that sometimes where there's a different culture. Now, we don't know for sure what was happening, but we do know that Mark had deserted them, and there was probably some concern that he, he would not be faithful and go back with them. And it could be over the fact that he was seeing Gentiles coming to faith in such a great way that he was really struggling with the way Paul was ministering and making converts and making disciples. That could have been his reason for departing them in Acts chapter 13. We don't know for sure, but the speculation is that was there. In verse 13 of chapter 13, Now Paul and his companions that sailed from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all we know. No reason given, but we can speculate that he did not agree. So let me give you three things about ministry that happen often. Folks, people do ministry. Amen? Programs are not ministry. Y'all with me? Any amens out there? Programs aren't ministry, folks. People are ministry. We do ministry. We use different tools and different methods for ministry, be it right now media or be it the parchment scrolls or be it whatever we use, be it three circles to share the gospel, be it the Roman road, road to provide the gospel truths, whatever the tool is, folks, people do ministry. You and I do ministry. We are the ministers of God's word. We are the ministers and the hands and feet that God has called to be salt and light to the earth. A program will save no one. A church building will save no one. A pulpit will save no one unless it is proclaiming the truth of God's word. A microphone no good for singing unless we are proclaiming the goodness of who Jesus is. You'll notice in our lyrics, when you, if you didn't know the song, if you just read the lyrics, Jesus was proclaimed in what we were singing. Folks, that's the truth we need to echo and get across. But who did it? People did it. God, from the time the earth was formed, chose to use you and I. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, we will see that God gives Adam and woman the great command, or he gives Adam the command to go forth under all the world, right? And to have dominion over all the earth, the fish, the livestock, the fowl, name them, rule over them. He established you and I to do his work. We are the glory of his hands. He breathed life into us from the very creation. You and I have always been the one God wants to do his work through. He reveals himself to us through his creation, through his nature, through general revelation. But his special revelation in the word of God anchors the fact that people do ministry. Therefore, people 
and ministry is messy. Amen? I've preached before barefooted, talking about how good it is, the great news that the messenger brings. Uh, and I did it barefoot to highlight the fact that when we walk around barefoot, our feet get dirty. And when we walk around barefoot, often people step on our feet. Uh, we don't have the protection that's there. And that's a lot like ministry. It gets messy. People step on our feet. Things get dirty. We walk in the room, and we've got to have someone like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Why? Because ministry is absolutely messy. It is not a pretty thing to have to counsel with a family on the verge of divorce or to have to grieve a crying mother because her 16-year-old son died in a DUI car accident that he should have never been there in the first place with. To go through a great tragedy that many of our families are experiencing and to minister to them. It's never a clean thing. It's always messy. It can be heartbreaking at times. But folks, people do ministry. But secondly, this issue with John Mark, I can't emphasize the importance of the body of Christ and individuals, all of us that are joined together in membership that have chosen to unite with Eyes Memorial Baptist Church, First Baptist Church Aberdeen, any of our churches. When we unite with your church that you are a part of, how important the issue of your character is when doing your ministry. It breaks my heart often when someone is on fire for the Lord and, and all of a sudden something happens and they just fizzle out like a firecracker. A little bang, but no smoke, right? I mean, nothing. Where did they go? What happened? What turned them off? John Mark, we don't know why he left, but we know one thing. Paul was concerned about John Mark, or John also called Mark, his character. What was the problem? Folks, character in ministry is often the key that unlocks doors to allow us to do ministry. And if our character is in question, if we're unfaithful, if we're not consistent over time, if we're not steadfast, if we're not solid in the things God has called us to when he's called us to them, we'll lose the character needed in our witness for our community and the witness for our children, the witness in our nursery ministry, the witness with our parents. We will lose that if our character is not true. You won't believe how important it is when the body of Christ gathers together every single person who ministers to this church. You notice someone opened the door for you this morning when you came into this church so you wouldn't have to touch a door handle. They kept it clean and sterile. They were the only ones touching that door handle to minimize your contact with a potential COVID virus that has rampaged our nation. A door was open. A toilet was clean for you to use this morning. A nursery floor. Man, I walked back there this morning, and that floor looked like the Shekinah glory of Jesus coming off of it. I mean, it was glowing, folks. It was incredible. And I thought, Gene, has, man, he has spit-shined this place to get it ready for our children to come back to this nursery. It was beautiful when I walked through the facility all by myself this morning. But other people made that possible. You know, we got security folks on duty right now, standing as the line of defense between you and whatever man or woman may want to come in here and do you harm while your head is bowed and your eyes are closed. We've got a man in a, back there at that door guarding. We've got a man in our fellowship hall standing watch over our children so the word of God can be taught. And if someone comes in to do them harm, he is the first person there to interject himself, to minister to the people. Folks, it takes all of us to do our role. And when one of us doesn't show up, we end up opening a door by ourselves. We end up having to use a dirty toilet. We end up not having the protection that our children can go over here while you sit here in comfort knowing that your children are loved and cared for without a concern for where your young precious treasure of a child is at. But someone's over there taking care of that. Imagine if they didn't show up. 
Folks, ministry takes people, it takes character. But lastly, let me share with you, like John Mark, not every person is fit for every task. Not every person is fit for every task. Now, that doesn't mean every person doesn't have a gift. You all have a gift. Man, imagine what we could do for the gospel if every member in the body of Christ used their gift today. Today. Of the $8 billion given in philanthropy a year, according to the federal tax dollars IRS record, $8 billion, $8 billion with a B, given, and it grows every year. You know, only 7% of that is attributed to tithes and offerings given to the church. 7%. 7%. Now, well, keep your money. God don't need your money, right? I don't need your money. This is God's church. He will provide, amen? I believe that so heartily. But it is an illustration I want you to understand. It's easy to equate and illustrate with numbers and, and figures. 7% of the $8 billion given goes to the church. Imagine if that was 97% the work the church could do. Now imagine if we took the same numbers, and we have a membership population of 187 on our rolls right now. Had 435 when I first got here. We got 187 now. No, I didn't kill them all, okay? Uh, despite what you may think. 187. Imagine if we had 187 people signed up, waiting in line, saying, where can I serve? Imagine the work that could get done. It's an it's a often understood rule amongst ministers that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Even at our associational level, the 20% doing the work at the local church are the same 20% doing the work at the association of the church. The 80% are consuming ministry. So here's my challenge to you. While not every person is fit for every task, John Mark, John called Mark here. Obviously, Paul didn't fit, find that he was fit for the task that he had at hand for him. But he still had a purpose, and he went on to Cyprus, and he ministered with Barnabas there. And later on, Paul would write about Mark. He would write to Timothy, his son in the faith, and say, and by the way, tell John Mark to come and visit me, for he is still useful to me. See, he had reconciled and understood that John Mark was also doing great things for the gospel. But not every person is fit for every task, and not everyone is mature enough to handle the journey that lies ahead. And I believe that was the challenge with Mark and Paul recognized it. Let me share with you thirdly, verse 39. If you've got your Bible, look there. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Okay, this is short. Let me, they almost went to blows over this. That's kind of what this, this word means here. I mean, there was such a disagreement. It was heated. It was contentious. It was hot. You would have thought, oh, oh, you know that look, right? Right? You see a husband and a wife over lunch starting to get into it, and the voices start elevating. Next thing you know, you see body posture starting to change. There's some verbal and nonverbal communication happening. And you say, oh, excuse me for a minute, I'm going to go in the next room. I'm going to get out of here. Right? That's what was going on with Barnabas and, and Paul. I mean, it was, it was hot. There was no little disagreement about it. It caused Barnabas the encourager and Saul of Tarsus, the now apostle Paul, probably two of the most mature men that we see in the New Testament, it caused these two men to split parts. I mean, imagine that. Folks, the, the maturity level there between the two of these guys was probably a, a high. Been at the Jerusalem Council, been talking before the church, been with the elders. I mean, they're up, they're the pinnacle of what you would think mature people would be. And even this disagreement is so stern, so harsh, that it causes them to split. 
So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and he sailed away to Cyprus, comma. So what's going on here? You ever notice that conflict can cause constructive progress? Think about your own life. Think about when you lost a job, and all of a sudden you had this conflict in your life, and it caused you to start searching for a new job. God ever opened a door for you to a job that you had no idea you'd be able to serve And all of a sudden, now this new job has provided so many blessings for you in new ways that you couldn't have even thought about before it happened. You ever had a circumstance in your life that while you were going through the conflict, you thought to yourself, I might as well just die because it's just that bad. But then on the other side of that conflict, decisions and doors got open for you that God did, that you came out of the other side thinking, I couldn't have even wrote this story the way God has allowed it to turn out. And I don't have time to share my stories with him. And I've got, I've got accounts in my life where I made decisions to do certain things with fear of not knowing what would happen if I did it. If I walked through that door, if I was faithful, one of those need, meant I needed to refuse deploying to Afghanistan after my recent return home. I hadn't been home but a, but a month. I was going right back. And I had to tell my boss, no, I can't go because it will wreck my family. My wife cannot handle me going back right now. I'll go back, but I need to be home for my family right now. Now, you've got to imagine a soldier telling his colonel that, hey, and I'm a commander too, hey, I can't take the company back to Afghanistan. I can't take my guys and gals to go fight because my family needs me more. Now, that's a, that's a crossroads of decision of conflict for me. And I will tell you just in, in short, looking back, making that decision was the best thing that I could have ever done. Not just for my family, but for my professional career. Doors open that I couldn't have even imagined would have opened for me. Put me three or four light years ahead of where I would have been professionally. Because I made the hard decision and, and faced the conflict, not knowing what was on the other side, but trusting, God, I need you to take care of this. Because I'm, I'm done. My hands are tied. Folks, conflict also often causes great, great progress. Let me show a picture with you. This picture is of Hamburg, Germany. In 1945, during World War II, Hamburg, Germany was a site of industrial revolution in Germany. A lot of great things were happening, and tanks and armor and things were being built, and the American Allied forces bombed the tar out of Germany, leveled their factories and facilities. They were starting to lead in engineering and leading in production and capability. And because of World War II and the transgression and this great conflict, the Allied forces decimated Germany, decimated the enemy, ended up winning the war. You know the rest of the story. But if you look at that picture and those children that are German children, women, that man that's standing there looking back at the destruction, had no idea that one day they would see that out of conflict would come great construction that would take Germany leaps and bounds ahead of even America's industrial revolution. It would put them so far ahead that other nations would be playing catch-up to the engineering feats of what Germany would do. Because you see, Germany, because of the conflict, had no choice but to rebuild new. And here's what Hamburg looks like today. In 1945, when it was decimated, you look at it today, and you see beautiful industrial complexes where engineering feats are still today coming out. Bavarian Motor Works, if you happen to know BMW, what it stands for, and other things that are renowned for German engineering. I love woodworking, and some of my best tools are German-made because they're just known for their engineering skills. 
Folks, out of the conflict comes construction for our own life as well. What would our life look like if we could view the conflict and say, God, what are you doing with me to rebuild me stronger in this part of my life? What are you doing in my season to help grow me stronger? Notice the comment. Growth often occurs out of conflict, not out of comfort. When we're comfortable, folks, I would argue we don't grow. When we're comfortable in our Christian walk, we don't grow in comfort. God grows us during a time of conflict. Even in the church, when you and I face conflict about certain decisions, about restructuring, about curriculums, about how we teach, or whether I use an ESV or you name it, the list can go on. But out of the conflict that we go through together, God builds us stronger. Conflict is often the conduit for constructive change. makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it, but man, on the other side of it, we see the benefit of what God is doing in our life, in our own personal decisions, in our spiritual decisions, when we stand for what we believe, when we stand for what the Bible says, when I stand for pro-life, when I stand for the sanctity of life, when I stand for the sanctity of what the Bible says marriage is, it's going to make some people uncomfortable. It may jeopardize my job. It may run the risk of putting me in prison. But you know what? Out of that conflict, God will build a great work in you and I. If we will just stand and understand that conflict is often the conduit. Let me share with you a, a change that took place. You may be familiar with the name Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie. Well, Andrew Carnegie had started a company known as the Keystone Bridge Company. And what you're looking at right now is the EADS Bridge, named after the engineer that designed this bridge, and it was spanning the Mississippi River. Now, at the time of the building of this bridge, one out of every four bridges in America failed, meaning the locomotive that was going across the bridge carrying its passengers and cargo would plummet into the river below, often falling hundreds and hundreds of feet. It was a known fact in the bridge community and the architects and engineers that one out of every four bridges in America would fail under load. And Andrew Carnegie says, you know what, that shouldn't be. I'm going to come up with a way, I'm going to design a way with the help of other professionals, and we're going to make a new process, and we're going to construct a bridge using tubular steel and I-beams, things that were unheard of during that time, and they weren't available in the industry. Carnegie decided to build a factory that would build these steel beams and tubular constructions. And he would set out to design what we know to be the, the EADS bridge spanning the Mississippi River today. And he would use a new way out of the very conflict that was going on during the time. You see, necessity is often birthed out of times of need. The engineering that we have is developed because of that. And Carnegie capitalized on that issue. What is God doing? Let me share with you. God builds great bridges, great divides, requiring stronger bridges that Carnegie understood. Look at verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Now, I'm going to talk about Silas in just a minute and why this was such a gifting from God that Paul would now go on his second missionary journey with another partner that had the unique skills needed, just like Carnegie needed some unique skills to build that new type of bridge that hadn't been done before. Paul's going to use Silas, often known as Silvanus, his, his Greek name, right? his Roman name, excuse me. We're going to see what Paul does. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, you see the church wasn't in disarray over this issue. 
The church in Antioch was still commending Paul and Silas now to the work that they had been commissioned to. Verse 41, and they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, doing the very thing that Paul was gifted for, now with a new partner in ministry. Let me share with you the awesome pairing and the work of God and what God did to help strengthen Paul. And I don't believe he understood this was going to be the place when him and Barnabas had conflict. But look what, what, look what God does in giving Paul Silas. Now, you don't see this right away, but let me flesh it out. I'm going to give you some keywords. You can go right to it. A man called by God as a prophet. In Acts 15.32, we see that Silas was already a prophet, meaning he was respected amongst the brethren. He was already prophesying the truth of God's word. He was the man for the right job at the right time to accompany Paul. Paul didn't know that initially, but out of the conflict, he partners with someone that's even stronger in the ministry than Mark would have been, that I would argue even Barnabas is. Now, here's an interesting note. After this text of Scripture, we don't see Barnabas' name mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Don't know why. Don't know what all went on. But we have no biblical canon of any text that tells us Barnabas was doing other great things that were preserved and recorded as the Word of God for you and I. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't go on to do great things. But there's something significant that we have a whole lot more of what was going on with Paul and Silas being faithful to God. And we have whole little of what was happening with Barnabas and Mark on the island of Cyprus. I, I think there's a correlation that can be made there. That God chose to use Paul and Silas now to carry on this great work amongst this conflict. Not only was he a man called by God as a prophet, he was a man of proven character. He was chosen to represent the Jerusalem church. That's a pretty big deal, folks. And this man, Silas, when he went back to Antioch, was there to represent Jerusalem. He had the trust of the Jerusalem church. He had built character. He was a man of unique skills. In 1 Peter 5.12, you will find out that it was this Silas who was the amanuensis. That's a fancy word for secretary. He was the one who wrote 1 Peter. We see that in there. Peter gives him... Uh, attributed the writing to him. So he's the one actually scribing. Why is that important? Because he knew Greek fluently. Who's he ministering to? The Gentiles. What did they speak? They spoke Greek. Wouldn't it be wonderful to not have a Jew who's halfway committed, perhaps what Mark was, but yet rather have a Silas, have a Silvanus who spoke Greek, who could write it, who could write down and keep the notes and to take that man with you onto the journey. doesn't seem like he's the right fit. We have the privilege of looking at hindsight and seeing all this coming together. But lastly, he was a man committed to the work. He was committed to strengthening the church. We can go back to Acts 14 and 22. We see that he was already doing the very things that Paul needed him to be doing. So three ways that conflict can build bridges. Let me give them to you very quickly. Three ways. Conflict can forge new ministry opportunities. Now, I share this with you, folks, because as a church, I want you to open your mind and, and recognize what God is doing amongst us and in your own life. Three years down the road from now, when you face conflict in church, in your Sunday school class, in a deacon's meeting, in a trustee board, in a committee meeting, in a church council, in a church business meeting, we've got to open our eyes to understand God is doing a greater work amongst us than we can often even scratch the surface in comprehending so number one, conflict can forge new ministry opportunities. 
things that we didn't even see were available can come out of a conflict. Who would have thought last year when we approved our church calendar? <laughs> it's good, ain't it? We do that in Baptist churches. Nothing wrong with it. We put on our calendar all the things we want to do. You know what, what wasn't on there? Wasn't on there feeding 7,000 people because of COVID. Wasn't on there running our kitchen for 12 weeks with a ministry and a line item to support the budget. Those things weren't on our budget and our calendar last year. How did it happen? Folks, God can do things through conflict and through need that we couldn't even begin to imagine we'd be used by God in such a way. Isn't it wonderful to let God have control? God will forge new ministries and new opportunities, but also conflict can forge new ministry skills. Guess what's gone on during our COVID? We're learning how to do new things, aren't we? We're learning how to use social media. Those of us that say, I'll never use a computer. I'm over my dead body. Well, it might be. I'm not sure. Uh, but we're, we're getting a lot of more folks on emails and social media and Facebook and Zoom and Twitter and all this other stuff that was never even part of our vocabulary before this conflict of COVID. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to like it. Okay? I still prefer one-on-one in-person meetings. There's something wonderful about that. But, man, hasn't it given us an ability? I would argue, folks, now, you put your big church hat on. Big, I'm talking global perspective church here. Folks, we are reaching more people for Jesus Christ today because of online, faithful, God-focused, biblically-anchored preaching and teaching that is now available around the world than at any other time in our history. Can God use COVID to help us rapidly jump into the next generation of media age? You better believe it. Is he doing it? You better believe it. All y'all at home say amen. Right? You wouldn't have thought about watching church from home during 11 o'clock eight months ago. But here we are. Right? You're involved too. Folks, God is doing a great work that I don't think we can even begin to comprehend how quickly we are starting to be able to share the gospel around the world. How many of y'all have shared our sermons on Facebook and hit a button, two clicks of a mouse, you shared the link to our sermons and our preaching or to our Facebook or to our church services? Anybody? Just me. Uh, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, shame on you, right? Just kidding. Folks, with it, two clicks of a mouse button, we can share the gospel and point someone to opening a link where they can hear the word of God preached. They can go to a, a online rightnowmedia.org. We give it away for free if you want a subscription to it. And you can click on one of 14,000 studies that will help you know God more personally. Click, click. Here's Jesus. Man, what an awesome time we live in. God is forging new skills in ministry. But thirdly, God can forge new ministry relationships. Relationships. Folks, we're meeting new people and we're ministering in ways today that we didn't know these people before COVID. We didn't know these opportunities existed. You know, during COVID, we now have a, a, a partnership with a family that is ministering in Israel that is going to be living there as Israeli citizens, once American citizens, Now they've gained their Israeli citizenship and they've left their job behind, sold their house, packing up their four kids, and they're moving just west of Tel Aviv, near the coast of Caesarea, and they're going to be living there teaching. What do you think they're teaching? Anybody? They're teaching woodworking skills. How did I meet this family? I was looking for a table saw because I like doing woodwork. Could God use Facebook Marketplace to put a disciple with a missionary together to take the gospel to Jerusalem, 
to bring it before the people of God, to support a ministry of a great work of God amongst his people? Could God use Facebook Marketplace and a table saw to connect the dots between two people? Folks, God is greater than you and I. And he has a perspective that you and I can't even begin to to, to concept of what he is doing, allowing us to do this together. Now we have a missionary and a family that we support going to Israel to take the to take the gospel to Paul's people. To take the gospel to the Jerusalem church's people. And we, we little old Pine Bluff Baptist Church here, Eyes Memorial Baptist Church of Pine Bluff, little old us, have a hand in taking the gospel back to Jerusalem, to the Jewish people. Could God do a great work amongst us? Can he build new ministry relationships that we didn't even see that was how it was going to come out of this whole thing? Folks, I'd argue when we are faithful to choose God over good, when we are faithful to do his work, he will do a great work. Let me share with you in closing a picture. This is a picture of what the Eads Bridge looks like today. And it has stood the test of time because Carnegie was wise enough to create a new way to forge out of what was conflict a new way to cross a bridge. Now, what he never thought about, when we understand the word Car- Carnegie, many of us pronounce it Carnegie Hall, but it's actually pronounced Carnegie. When he built this bridge and came up with a new technique, he never in his wildest dreams thought what would happen with this steel would come about. Let me show the next picture. Now, many of you know this photograph. It's a picture of the New York City skyline. Carnegie Steel was the absolute most instrumental force in building the New York City skyscrapers that anyone in the world has ever known. Now, he didn't set out to build a skyscraper. He set out to build a bridge. I didn't set out to buy a table saw for the fact of getting a missionary partnership, but God brought it together. Now, imagine if God can take a little old steel company, bridge-making company, and use it for something that would create an icon of what America would be. Imagine how he could use the gospel and how he could use you and I. Matter of fact, let me show you another picture that shows how he could do it. Now, this is a little different picture. Now, this is a picture of how a man, through the conflict of crucifixion, would get nailed to a cross in Jerusalem, and he would die for the sins of the world. And many that were looking upon this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, as he was on that cross of Calvary, many of including his disciples who followed him for years, who were taught, who were fed, who he cleaned their feet, they would look upon that cross with our Jesus being crucified. And they could not, in any estimation, understand the great work that Jesus was going to do, that he was doing at that moment on the cross for all of humanity. For God demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for me. He died for you. And that work that he began on Golgotha's hill, the hill of the skull, paved the way for what we now enjoy some 2,000 years later. Paved the way for what Paul wanted to do with Silas as he went back to strengthen the churches. Through conflict, Jesus brought salvation. Through conflict, Paul and Silas were paired together and began a great work of God that continues to this day, which you and I are a recipient of. Through conflict of the sin in your life, do we recognize our need 
for the Savior. It's through conflict that Jesus has left the greatest work that we will ever know. The redemption of my soul. The redemption of your soul. I would argue the cross is the ultimate bridge builder. That we can walk across confidently knowing that he's not only conquered death by his resurrection, but he's also conquered sin in our life. And we let Jesus be the ultimate bridge that reunites us back to God through our faith in Christ Jesus. It's by faith and faith alone, not by works. It's a gift to God, lest no man shall boast. When we give it all to Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus, we don't have to understand all that's going to take place. I would argue Carnegie never knew what the New York skyline looked like when he was building a bridge. But I would argue this. Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross of Calvary so that you and I would know how to return in our relationship with Jesus. So with that said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and if you're joining us at home, don't turn off yet. Don't let the kids run around and don't turn up the music. Stay right where you're at. And I want to encourage you to respond with every head bowed and every eye closed, even you at home sitting on a couch, around the dining room table, at the kitchen counter. Every head bowed and every eye closed. We know conflict is true. Jesus reminds us we would be persecuted. As they persecuted him, we also would be. But folks, what good is God doing in the conflict in your life today? Can you see it? Can you recognize it? Are you looking for it? God will do a great work. And out of turbulent waters, he will build bridges for you and I to cross over in ways we never, ever could have conceived of. But he is doing that great work. If you are his child, he's got a great work in store for you. Are you trusting him in all things? Even amidst COVID, amidst financial depression, amongst concern about jobs and all these things that are going on. What God will do on the other side of this conflict for you, we know is true. He will be faithful. He does not change. Yesterday, today, and forever, he is the same always. The same God that loved you and built a bridge on cross of Calvary is building bridges for you today to face what lies for tomorrow. And if you don't know Jesus and if you've never accepted Christ, if you don't know that there's ever a time in your life where you've said, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I know you loved me enough to go to the cross of Calvary. You died for my sins. I don't understand all that. But Lord, I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Jesus is pretty positive. He said, I will hear that prayer. I will heal you, forgive you of your sins, and help you to follow me. And if that's you here today, you need to let us know that. If you're here in this congregation and that's your decision, when we begin singing, I want you to step out from where you're at and come find me here at the pulpit. If you give me COVID, so be it. That was meant to be. But I will lead you in a sinner's prayer. Amen? If that's your need today, if you're at home and you need to accept Christ and you've never done that and and you want to pray that prayer, maybe you did pray that prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I choose to follow you. Let us know of that decision so we can get you started as a disciple in Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for this time, this time together for the body of Christ. Lord, if there's one here that needs you, if there's one here that salvation is dependent upon today, Lord, I pray that you would stir their hearts, the Holy Spirit would guide them in conviction of their need for salvation. And, Father, for those that are your church, may we be strong to understand that out of conflict, you build some mighty big bridges. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. Give us courage, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.